You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we tackle the subject matter I plan to cover today, I want to begin with an important disclaimer. While I feel very confident in my biblical understanding of the end times, and specifically the scriptures and what they have to say about the future, I want to acknowledge right from the beginning that there are godly, honorable, intelligent believers who see these things that we'll discuss today much differently than I do. These people are absolutely wrong, but they aren't heretics or bad Christians. It's also worth noting that as it pertains to the end times, regardless of our disagreements concerning the details, the orthodox understanding of our final destination is universally agreed upon. The suffering of this world will give way to an eternity that we get to spend with our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the end, the differences in eschatological beliefs center primarily on the journey that we have to travel to get to our final destination. While there are nuanced positions that split hairs across a wide spectrum of beliefs, the core difference between my view and others hinges on how one interprets the prophecies of Daniel, the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, in the book of Revelation. For example, if you believe the 70 weeks prophecy recorded in Daniel 9 verses 26 and 27, what Jesus then articulated to his disciples from the Mount of Olives and the revelation given to the Apostle John, if you think those things document the events of 70 AD when Titus Vespasian destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, well then you'll have a much different perspective than someone like myself who sees these prophecies as still requiring a literal future fulfillment. You see, for me, it boils down to two contrary approaches regarding the Bible itself. You either contort Scripture to fit into an eschatological position you already have, or you allow Scripture to dictate your eschatology. It's really that simple. Let me, let me add, before we go further, a historical footnote. I think it's important. Beginning in 70 A.D. and continuing for 1,878 years until May of 1948, church theologians, they had a big struggle, a challenge. You see, they struggled with a literal reading of end times prophecies, mainly because the children of Israel as a nation were front and center in the prophecies. Now, what was the issue? Well, many reasoned. How could any of these things be describing future events since the nation of Israel didn't exist? Like, in fairness, you can understand their challenge. Like, without the nation of Israel, the logical assumption was these prophecies couldn't be describing the future. And since that's the case, scholars 
had to then figure out a way to fit the fulfillment of these prophecies into events that had already happened in history. Not only did the assumption that Israel as a nation was gone and gone forever give rise to what's known as replacement or covenant theology and later dispensationalism, but the grand irony of ironies about it all is that such attempts became silly and pointless when out of nowhere Israel rose from the ashes of history following World War II. Frankly, I believe the best way to study as well as to understand biblical prophecy is to employ three very simple approaches. First, unless you're told otherwise, read the text literally. Secondly, look for a historical event that cleanly fits into the literal description. And thirdly, if there isn't one, you can go ahead and assume that the prophecy still has a future fulfillment. The purpose of our time together this morning is to uh, to help us transition from our travels through the book of Daniel to now a new study in the book of Revelation. This Bible study is somewhat of a transition between the two. And to do this, I really have two goals. I'm just going to be up front right from the beginning. First, I want to take what we've learned from Daniel concerning the the seven-year Great Tribulation, the second coming of Jesus, the millennial reign of Christ, as well as what we're going to learn in our travels through the book of Revelation. And I want to take all of this information and organize it into a very simple timeline that's easy for you to understand. Take all the pieces, all the information, and kind of package it together. After this... I then want to take some time this morning to address three additional prophecies I don't believe fit within the end-time scenario, but may very well set the stage for these amazing events. To begin with, any discussion of the end times must start with the 70 weeks prophecy recorded in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. The reason we have to start here is that This prophecy provides for us kind of the foundation by which so much of our understanding of the future is based. It's the foundation in which the house is built. Since this is the case, let me take a few minutes and kind of re-examine, not the prophecy in all of its particulars, but more of kind of the generalities of the 70 weeks prophecy. Verse 24 of Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined for your people, and for your holy city. So God set aside 490 years to accomplish the following things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, most of this list clearly hasn't been fulfilled. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. We know historically that from the command of King Xerxes on March 14, 445 B.C., allowing the Jews to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, it took seven weeks or 49 years for the people to complete the street and the walls. According to Nehemiah, all of this happened in troublesome times indeed. 
once the city was finished in accordance with Xerxes' command, it then took another 62 weeks or 434 years for Jesus to appear to Jerusalem making his triumphal entry. As a result, verse 25 closes with 483 years of the 490 years God had set aside for Israel are already being fulfilled. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Again, we know verse 26 has a clear fulfillment in history. Exactly 483 years from Xerxes' decree. Seven weeks, followed by another 62 weeks. Jesus presented himself to Israel as their Messiah. The people were waving palm branches. The crowd was singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King. After, we're told, this incredible moment, we know two tragic events followed according to the prophecy, and history confirms it. Jesus was cut off, crucified. And the Romans destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, the he refers back to the prince who is to come indicating this future leader would be of Roman or European descent. Additionally, the covenant for one week refers to a peace accord that would last a period of seven years or Daniel's 70th week. We're told that in the middle of the week, this the three and a half year mark, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Jesus would actually build off this important passage in discussing these things with the disciples. Matthew 25, verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see this abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the mountaintops, on the housetop, not go down to take anything of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or Sabbath. There will be great tribulation, Jesus says, such as not has been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, one of the pastors that I've listened to during my own study and preparation of our series through Daniel, a man that I admire, but totally disagree with when it comes to the future. When he got to the 70 weeks prophecy, instead of explaining how it fit into his eschatology, he simply threw up his hands and said, I quote, anyone who says they know what this means is lying to you. Now, because the prophecy didn't fit within his belief structure, it was just easier for him to ignore it. Again, trying to take the Bible to fit into your eschatology versus letting the Bible dictate your eschatology really was a shame and disappointing. Not only do I reject the idea that Daniel 9 is unknowable and confusing, but from my perspective, there are two things that we know for sure that are easy to interpret in light of the 70 weeks prophecy. First, of the 490 years that God set aside for the Jewish people, 483 years have already taken place in history. That's clear. Secondly, in addition to most of the items on God's to-do list 
still not being presently accomplished? We know that this final period of seven years has no clear historical fulfillment. Like, to this point, because Jesus placed the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet as still being a future event, we know it could not have been fulfilled as some claim by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC. Furthermore, while it is true that in 70 AD, Titus may have brought an end to sacrifice and offerings, you know, because he destroyed Jerusalem in the temple, there's no evidence he confirmed a covenant with many or anyone, nor does he commit the abomination of desolation in any way, shape, or form. In light of this reality, you're really only left with one logical, honest conclusion. The final seven years of God's determined 490-year timeline for Israel still remains future. And since this is the case, the 70 weeks prophecy places for us three events on the future timeline. Let's examine them. According to Daniel 9, we know the seven years begins with the Antichrist signing a peace with many including Israel. So we know how this begins, the seven years. We also know that at the middle point, the three and a half year mark seven of the seven years, 100, uh, 1,260 days, technically, 360 day year. We know at the middle part, three and a half years, the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. So we know this begins with the signing of the false peace, the Antichrist, many, Israel. We know at the middle part is this abomination of desolation. Because of this evil act, the Hebrew people end up rejecting this man. And in turn, they accept Jesus as their Messiah. What results? Well, the next three, uh, the next three and a half years become a great tribulation. Unlike anything the world's ever seen. Aside from the systematic persecution of all the Jews, in addition, anyone that would follow Jesus. This period also includes the judgment of God being poured out on the wicked world that's in complete and utter rebellion. On account of all of this, we know how this seven years ends. We know how it begins, we know what happens in the middle, we know what happens at the end. These seven years will end 2,560 days after they began, and 1,260 days following the abomination of desolation with the Battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus to this earth riding on a white stallion in glory. And this awesome event in history, anyone on earth who had taken the mark of the beast will be destroyed. Their souls will be sent to Hades to await the final judgment. The Antichrist, the false prophet, fallen angels are all thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is cast into the bottomless pit where he'll remain in chains for a thousand years. According to an additional timeline that's provided for us in Daniel 12, that kind of takes us a little bit beyond these seven years, we know that once Christ returns, it'll take him 30 days to restore the earth, heal the seas, round up all of the survivors. Then with everyone finally gathered in Jerusalem, the earth back in good health for the next 45 days, Jesus will he'll reorder the nations. He'll form his government. 75 days after his second coming, 
the millennial reign of Christ will begin, lasting for a thousand years. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., in the year of our Lord, will give way to any, a new era of human history. Though we're a little vague on all the particulars, according to Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, we're actually given some insight what will happen at the end of these thousand years, the millennial reign. We read, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was then cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. At this point, the final great white throne judgment occurs whereby all those who had died rejecting Jesus are judged. We're told according to their works. Again, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4, John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, getting back to our timeline, and specifically the events of the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. From kind of the 10,000-foot perspective, we know this period of time is designed to accomplish two aims from God's perspective. First, God allows the Antichrist to deceive the Jewish people so that during the abomination of desolation, they might come to see Jesus finally as being their Christ. Don't forget the the whole purpose of these seven years, according to Daniel 9, was for God to finish His dealings with the children of Israel. That said, there is a second purpose. You see, just as God has done in times past, Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the ten plagues of Egypt, to name just a few examples. God will use these seven years to supernaturally, cosmically, judge the world of her sin and her rebellion and her rejection of Jesus. While you'll find an outline of these judgments presented for for you in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, it is the book of Revelation that provides for us the most comprehensive articulation of these things. Now, if you recall, in Daniel 12, verse 9, Jesus said to this old prophet, He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. I want to just for a moment fast forward to the heavenly scene recorded for us in the future in Revelation 5. Beginning with verse 1, John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But, John says, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked. And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came, and we know this is Jesus, and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Beginning in Revelation 6, (coughs) from heaven, Jesus... The glorified, resurrected Lord, he begins to loose these seven seals. And with each of them, a divine judgment takes place on the earth. Personally, I believe the imagery of Jesus unsealing the scroll intends to relay the enacting of or the implementing of the future prophecies given to Daniel the prophet. He had been instructed to close up and seal till the time of the end. We are now in the time of the end. In the throne room of heaven, it may be that John is watching Jesus unseal the book of Daniel. To this point, the first seal judgment describes the Antichrist emerging on the world scene. The second sees this man waging a war, a great war, in order to consolidate his power and authority. The third seal unleashes an economic collapse. The fourth, widespread death and famine. The fifth, a global persecution of the saints of God. The sixth, cosmic disturbances on the earth. Then with the loosing of the seventh seal, we have enacted a second set of judgments, known as the trumpet judgments. With the first, a third of all vegetation is burned up. With the second, a third of all sea creatures and ships are destroyed. With the third, a third of all fresh water is made bitter and undrinkable. With the fourth, a third of the sky was blackened. With the fifth, demon-like locusts are allowed to torment the people of earth for five months. With the sixth, four fallen angels are released to kill a third of mankind through a war. With the seventh trumpet, we find another set of seven. Final bowl judgments are poured out on the earth. The first bowl causes loathsome sores to break out on anyone who had the mark of the beast. The second bowl turns the sea into into blood, all of the sea into blood, killing all marine life. The third bowl does the same with the fresh water. The fourth causes the sun to increase in its heat and scorch men on the earth with a great heat. The fifth bowl sees the world covered in a horrifying darkness. The sixth bowl releases four demons who gather the armies of the world for a final conflict. The seventh bowl sees a great earthquake, thunderings and lightnings, Jerusalem split into three, the cities of the earth brought into ruin, and a hundred pound hailstones raining down on the planet. I should add here that trying to place these three sets of judgments that take place during these seven years, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, Trying to place them into like a clear chronological framework is really difficult. And it's difficult for two 
I think, understandable reasons. One, keep in mind, events taking place in heaven are triggering events occurring on earth. Now, the obvious challenge to that is that we don't actually fully understand the way that time functions in the heavenly realm and how it relates to the way that time functions on earth. Still a bit of a mystery. Also, because the seventh seal judgment triggers six trumpet judgments, with the seventh trumpet triggering seven more bowl judgments, meaning the seventh seal judgment actually includes a grand total of 13 additional judgments, there is no doubt, no question, that we have some serious overlap. I'm not sure a a repeating, but definitely an overlap. Now, in my opinion, and again, you, you really can't be dogmatic to the point, but my opinion is that the first four seal judgments that are actually described using very unique language a white horse, and a red horse, and a black horse, and a pale horse. I believe the first four seals occur during the first three and a half years, with the rest of the judgments probably taking place during the second half, which Jesus refers to as great tribulation. It's all tribulation, but this is great tribulation. And I should add that there are some who try to argue the first three and a half years aren't really that bad. Now, they might not be as bad if you place them in context of the the final three and a half years. But I can say this with certainty. I don't want to live through them. Now, let me recap. Again, the idea here is to try to place this in a a real concise, articulate frame. Let me recap what we've discussed thus far. The seven-year tribulation period begins with the Antichrist signing a treaty with many, including Israel, seal one. Concerning those who refuse to join this confederation, the Antichrist wages war on them, seal two. As a result, the global economy collapses, seal three. From war, severe inflation, famine, we're told a fourth of the earth perishes, seal four. I should add during this time, we have 144,000 Hebrews from the 12 tribes of Israel sealed as evangelists. We also have two witnesses. We'll get to that when we get to our our Revelation series. Now, at the halfway point of these seven years, this Antichrist He enters the temple and he commits the abomination of desolation. Talked about by Daniel, talked about by Jesus. He's also allowed to kill these two witnesses. And he proceeds to initiate a brutal persecution of the saints of God. Seal 5. Almost immediately the earth begins to moan for its maker. Seal 6. Over these three and a half years, this seventh seal unleashes what can only be described as truly great tribulation. A third of all vegetation is burned up. A third of the sea is turned to blood. A third of fresh water becomes undrinkable. A third of the sky is blackened. At some point, demon locusts are released to torment men for five years. While that's happening, four more demons are released out of chains to spark another war that kills an additional one-third of mankind. Then as we rapidly approach the end of the seven years, all those who've taken the mark break out in these loathsome sores. Likely because of the fallout of the second great war, the rest of the sea is turned to blood. All of the fresh water becomes undrinkable. The deterioration of the ozone causes the temperatures on earth to soar. Whether it be on account of a nuclear fallout or volcanic eruptions, the entire sky is turned to darkness. Four more demons are released to bring the world together for this final battle in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. 
Then the final bowl is poured out, whereby God brings the cities of this world to ruin through a great earthquake. He judges the world for blasphemy. How? He stones them with 100-pound hailstones. It's in this moment, Jesus comes riding out of heaven on a white horse. He puts an end to the mayhem. Indeed, if things were allowed to continue, no flesh would have been able to survive. Following Jesus' second coming, the destruction of the Antichrist, the false prophet, all those that had lined themselves with him, Satan being cast into chains. For 30 days, Jesus restores the earth. He rounds up the elect, the survivors. Then over the next 45 days, Jesus reorganizes the nations. He establishes his kingdom. You and I rule and reign. We're given jobs. Jesus reigns gloriously on this earth for a thousand years. When there's one final rebellion that God intervenes and he crushes. Following this, all the sinners are judged. And this existence gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. That's your future. Moving beyond the prophecies that directly tie into what we call the end times. Regarding the future, our future, I should add that the Bible does include three additional prophecies that seem to occur before Daniel's 70th week, but likely in close proximity. Let's go through all three of them. First, According to congruent prophecies recorded in Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49, we know a day will come when the Syrian capital of Damascus, which is, by the way, one of the world's oldest cities, will be utterly and completely destroyed. In fact, because of her wickedness, God says that he will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus so that she ceases from being a city and becomes such a ruinous heap that her young men shall fall in her streets and that all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, in one day. Now whether the destruction, the future destruction of Damascus, and why do we know this is future? Because Damascus exists. Whether this happens via a preemptive attack, a nuclear attack maybe by Israel, or that the city is brought to some type of ruin from an accident, like we recently saw in the Lebanese capital of Beirut, there is a day coming on the horizon when Damascus experiences the divine judgment of God. So that's the first future event. Secondly, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we have provided for us an amazingly detailed description of a future attack against the nation of Israel. Truth be told, this account provided by Ezekiel, it's so detailed. We have more information about this conflict than we do about the Battle of Armageddon. This is a major event. Now, I, I wish I had more time to unpack the, the prophecy at length. But let me at least just give you the generalities. At some point again in the future, Israel will be attacked by a coalition of nations aligned with Russia, known as Gog and Magog. This list of nations in the prophecy that join Russia include Iran, Libya, some of the Islamic countries of northern Africa, as well as Turkey. Now, in the scenario that Ezekiel describes, Israel, <laughs> she's outmatched and outgunned. That said, against insurmountable odds, and what appeared to be 
certain destruction, God supernaturally intervenes and he protects his people by completely destroying this coalition. In fact, what happens is so blatantly, obviously supernatural that in turn it leads to a spiritual stirring, an awakening within Israel, I believe, sets the stage for the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. A case can be made that this event described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 creates the need whereby a world leader rises up to broker a peace between Israel and the rest of the world. A peace, by the way, that the Jews, now spiritually reawakened, demand include the rebuilding of their temple. Something they wouldn't do today, but they will then. This spiritual awakening, on account of God's direct intervention, also then paves the way for the Jews to see this leader who brings peace and a new temple as being their Messiah. Sadly, it won't take but three and a half years for the Hebrew people to see that this man is an antichrist and that Jesus is the true Christ. Now, what's so fascinating about Ezekiel Ezekiel 38 and 39, these prophecies, are the nations that are not included in the list. So a coalition of nations come against Israel. What's fascinating is those that aren't listed, that aren't included. Now, historically... Iraq, which would be Babylon, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt have always been the enemies of the Jewish people. And yet they're oddly absent. Today, through events that we've actually seen develop in our own generation, our own lifetime, these nations I just mentioned would likely pass on such a conflict. Syria has been mired in civil war for the last decade. In fact, if Damascus was destroyed prior to Ezekiel 38 and 39, you can understand why Syria wouldn't be included in the list. Aside from this, Egypt and Jordan are two of the Arab nations who actually have peace treaties with Israel. No doubt Iraq has issues with Iran that they have to worry about. Additionally, you should should notice that Saudi Arabia, as well as the rest of the Sunni Gulf states, are not included as well. Again, what we've seen recently provides some interesting insight. Led first by the UAE, normalizing, historically, relations with Israel just a few weeks ago. Many people believe that this is just the beginning. That the majority of the Arabian Peninsula, who are Sunni Muslims, are likely to strike up normalization uh, of relations with Israel. All of this might follow suit soon. Again, why they're not included in this list. According to the prophecy, the other thing that's, that provides some intrigue. So Israel is left to fend for herself against this invasion. But a lot of people find it odd that the United States is absent. Like today, few would risk an attack on Israel because it would bring the USA into the conflict because we're the chief ally of Israel. Now, it's my personal opinion that the reason that America is absent from this scenario And Israel alone, by this point in history, stems from the third prophetic event that takes place before the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, and that is the rapture of the church. Now, you'll not find one chapter dedicated to the rapture of the church. Like a chapter is like, everything you need to know about the rapture right here. But there is no question that this future event weaves its way 
throughout the entire New Testament. As an overview, and that's all I have time for. But the doctrine of the rapture presents a, a future moment in time when Jesus, the groom, calls the bride, the church, home to heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16-18, through 18, Paul writes of this event, he says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, or raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be with the Lord always. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now not to be mistaken, as the second coming of Jesus, when He actually returns to the earth, the rapture describes the moment when the church is instead taken from this earth to join Jesus in heaven. Again, writing of this event in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die. Some of us will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed, metamorphosized, transformed. Now up front, regarding those who believe in the rapture, some see this event happening in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. Others see it happening at the end. We refer to these positions as mid-trib and a post-trib, respectively. I believe that the Bible is absolutely crystal clear that the rapture of the church must happen before the tribulation. In fact, I don't think it can happen in any other place, and let me explain why. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through 8, Paul, he actually points to the work of the Holy Spirit through the church of Jesus as the singular thing presently restricting the revealing of the Antichrist. Let me read you what he writes. He says, Now you know what is restraining that he, this is the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he, the Holy Spirit, who now restrains, will do so till he, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It stands to reason. The rapture of the church not only enables the Antichrist to finally come upon the world stage, what's been restraining, no longer. But the completion of what we know as the church age also enables God to now turn his attention back to his dealings with the Hebrew people, which again relates directly to the 70 weeks prophecy. Romans 11, verses 25 and 26, Paul writes, For I do not desire that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until, so what will change? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. We'll get to this in our study in the book of Revelation. But the very structure of the book itself reinforces this idea. The church age coming to an end, the church rapturing, God's attention turning now to the Hebrew people. Aside from all of this, you will find the idea of imminency being critical to the rapture itself. Imminency, what does that mean? It means that the rapture could happen at any, at any moment, at any time. And Jesus would say that no man knows the day or the hour. Like the biggest issue connecting the rapture with the abomination of desolation, which is the view of mid-tribulationalists, or, or connecting it to the second coming of Jesus, which is what post-tribulationalists do, 
The problem with this is that it completely removes the idea of imminency. Like because of Daniel's prophecies and their specificity, we have a firm timeline of when these events happen to the day. Aside from that, the problem with the post-tribulational view is who's left to populate the millennial reign of Christ? Now, it's worth pointing out that the Bible describes the conditions on earth leading up to the rapture in such a way that, again, it's impossible for it to happen during the tribulation. You see, when Jesus calls the church home, no one will be expecting it or seeing it coming. In fact, there will be peace, we're told. Life will be good. It will be the opposite environment of a tribulational world that's been thrown into judgment and chaos and calamity. Ultimately, a pre-tribulational placement of the rapture happening before Daniel's 70th week is consistent, not just with scriptural precedent, but I also believe Jesus' character. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, Paul encourages the church to, quote, wait for his son to come from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, who will deliver us from the wrath to come. So look for Jesus, who will deliver us from the wrath. Then a few chapters later, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, Paul adds, For God did not appoint us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, Don't forget the two goals of the tribulational period. First, God wants to finish his dealings with Israel and judge the world for sin. Finish his dealings with Israel, one, judge the world for sin, two. Like over and over and over again, the Bible reinforces the, the precedent that before God punishes or pours out his wrath on the wicked, he first removes the righteous. Think back to Noah and the ark. Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. To this point about this being consistent with Jesus' character, Joe Foch, I think, said it perfectly. He said, it's not as though Jesus would beat up the bride before the honeymoon. Again, we have not been appointed for wrath. Lastly, not only should the rapture challenge Christians, is it designed to challenge Christians to live every day as if it may be our last, the rapture provides comfort when it comes to the future. It's designed to provide comfort as just one of many examples. In Revelation 3.10, Jesus says to the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia, He says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. What is He talking about? To test those who dwell on the earth. If the church had to endure any of the tribulational period, how in the world would the doctrine of the rapture provide any comfort or encouragement? It wouldn't. Let me play this out, again, giving you the big picture. And I'm going to use a little license. I believe that it's the rapture of the church that ends up crippling America, leaving Israel alone. I believe Syria, seeing an opportunity, moves against Israel, but that move is immediately thwarted by Israel when they destroy the city of Damascus. Because Russia is aligned with Syria. In fact, today they have military bases on Syrian soil. They take the Israeli strike against Damascus seriously. 
Russia organizes a coalition of the willing. They attack and Israel's doomed. But God intervenes. Reawakened by spiritual things, a Jewish leader then emerges from Europe. He ushers in a peace accord, allowing the temple to be rebuilt. He's hailed as the Messiah. In closing, (laughs) why should any of us care about the end times? This is an honest question. In the end, it's, it's simple, really. Like, knowing how things end should clarify what things should be important now. Like, Christian, like, we should not allow ourselves to get bogged down in despair by the things happening in our world today. Worse still, we shouldn't allow ourselves to get distracted by them from our ultimate purpose. You see, the remedy to to racism or social equity, or environmental justice. It's not what you and I do. It's the return of Jesus. That's the ultimate remedy. Like our priorities as Christians should be really clear and simple. Let me ask. If the rapture happened today, for it could, are you ready to stand before Jesus, your King, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you ready? If you knew great tribulation would begin tomorrow, who do you love enough that you would warn them immediately? You see, the way that you answer those two questions, it should let you know the things in your life that should change immediately. And it should let you know who you need to share the love of Christ with. Again, knowing how things end really does clarify what things should be important right now. So, Father, we thank you for your word. What it says to us, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Zach Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Zach's teaching ministry by visiting zachadams.org.